Hey, it's Andrew. Just quickly before we start this episode, I want to tell you about one of my favorite podcasts, the Secure Ventures Podcast. The host, Kyle McNulty, interviews cybersecurity founders about what they are building. I enjoy it because Kyle focuses on their technology, what it solves, why they build it, where it fits in the market. Also, listeners can understand the why of these startups. In some ways, it's a great compliment to my own podcast, where I focus on the go-to-market side, not on the technology side. He's had some great guests on recently, for example, the CEO of Reality Defender, when they talked about the ins and outs of deep fate detection. Uh, he's had the co-founder and CEO of Ghost Security, and also the co-founder of Radical, Chris Peterson, who was incidentally a founder of Logarithm, where they talk about the role of AI in the SOC. This is not a paid promotion. I just simply enjoy what Kyle is doing with his interviews and get a lot out of them. Check it out. It's the Secure Ventures podcast. Now on with this episode. Sometimes tackling an old but underserved part of the market can make the most impact. That's what NetRise is doing, and their co-founder and CEO, Tom Pace, joins me to talk about why is their market underserved, the reaction from prospects when they realize it can actually be solved, their biggest sales challenge right now, and also how Tom's first computer he ever had as a kid was from a brand that doesn't exist anymore, bought from a store that doesn't exist anymore. But don't go away. Welcome to the Sales Bluebird Podcast, where we help cybersecurity companies grow sales faster. I am cybersecurity go-to-market guy, Andrew Monahan. Our guest today is Tom Pace, co-founder and CEO at NetRise. Tom, welcome to Sales Bluebird. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this because you know we've got uh, a lot of common connections. You spent a bunch of time at Silence, and I was at McAfee. Never Silence, but a lot of the McAfee folks went to Silence. And secondly, you're, you're tackling a, a part of the industry which uh, it seems to me, anyway, you can correct me, uh, not many people are thinking about or at least tackling right now. And it's, I think, it's probably a part of the industry that's based on some assumptions that don't necessarily need to uh, be true. So. Uh, I'm going to test my my thought with you when we get to that point in the discussion. For sure, yeah. I mean, it's definitely a uh, an emerging space within cybersecurity and a in a market that is, um, you know, I, I guess you would call it nascent and and you know ripe for disruption. So we're excited about the opportunity. A quick break to say that this episode is sponsored by IT Harvest. With over 3,200 vendors in cybersecurity, it is hard to keep track of all the latest developments, as well as research and analyze categories and subcategories within cybersecurity, which is where the IT Harvest cybersecurity platform comes in. Want to know which subcategories in cloud security are growing the fastest? You'll get it in a few clicks. Want to know and track everything about your main competitors and keep up with their hiring and news? Simple search to be done. Want to know the top 20 fastest growing companies based out of Israel? Easy, just a couple of clicks to get that. IT Harvest is the first and only research platform dedicated to cybersecurity. And it's run by Richard Steenen, who has done it all in cybersecurity. From the VP of research at Gartner, a CMO at a cybersecurity vendor, a lecturer on cybersecurity, advisor to startups, advisory board member at startups, and a main board member as well, the whole lot. Find out more by going to salesbluebird.com slash research. That's salesbluebird.com slash research. 
Now back to the episode. Well, let's look at your your background, Tom. I'm going to use LinkedIn as the source of truth about uh, what you've been doing for your whole career. I'm going to try and summarize this as uh, effectively as I can. You started off in the Marine Corps uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, spent about four years there, came out of there, did a little bit around, looks like kind of com- uh, police, crime units, forensics, things like that. And your first real, I don't know if it's quite true, first real tech job, uh, PNC Bank, where you're an analyst and then an incident response investigator. And between PNC and your next stop at Floor, you were involved a lot in IDS, it sounded like, uh, network-based IDS and also host IDS. Um, it, that was over, it looks like, about five or six years between the two companies. And then from there, you made probably quite a, a big decision, a big movement in your career to join Silence, um, where you ended up running their worldwide consulting organization. Um, of course, we all know Silence was acquired by BlackBerry. You went over to BlackBerry uh, and held a role there for almost two years. And then fast forwarding a little bit, uh, we go to officially January 2021, when you said now is the perfect time to go and be the founder, co-founder of my own company. Um, take us back to that moment in time when you and your co-founders were Whatever you're doing, sitting around the campfire, uh, going, you know what? We should start something. Yeah, I mean, it had been an idea for a number of years to kind of do do my own thing, uh, but I didn't. I was very happy at Silence. Uh, I really liked it there. Um, I've said many times, if we didn't get acquired, I probably would have never left. Um, I probably wouldn't have. My life was great. Uh, I was, it was just awesome. Um, and then we got acquired and, and listen, Blackberries, uh, you know, they're a great company. I'm just not a big company guy. It's just not what I am. I never have been. Um, I don't, I don't do well surrounded by so much structure. It's just not for me. Um, it's not bad. It's just different. Uh, so that was really it for me. And so I've had to figure out. What do I want to like do with my life? I can either I can stay or I can go to another company and basically do the same thing I was just doing, um, which certainly would have been more lucrative. Or I can take the opportunity to go do my own thing. Um, and that that's really the decision making process. You know, I think that a lot of people think it's this, you know, I've been dreaming of starting a company my entire life. Couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you know, uh, like you, I'm certainly passionate about what we're doing and all of that. You have to be, otherwise it'll just never be successful. Um, but, but that's, that was like the motivator for me was solving a, a hard problem and kind of being responsible for my own, for my own future. That, that, that's what was really interesting to me. And, and that's even evolved now since I've started the company. Like, man, I have, I get so much more satisfaction around seeing the people that work at this company feel like they're doing something important uh, and feel like they are contributing to something and can see the output of their efforts in the product, in customer satisfaction, in whatever. And that's just really hard to get at big companies, right? I feel like at big companies, you're part of a, a big, big uh, apparatus. And in the, the day, you know, for most people in the organization, what they do 
isn't going to have a big impact on customer success in general. You know, you obviously you're contributing towards it, but you can't sit there and go, yeah, that's what I did, right? Whereas at startups, you have to, there's no choice. That's all there is. Uh, if you can't point and show me what you did, then I don't know what you're doing here. Right, right, right. So how easy was it to get your co-founders on board? And did you, how did you know them? Yeah, so I met my co-founder. There's just two of us, uh, me and Mike. I met Mike at Silence. Um, we built some stuff together there. Uh, we built like an incident response platform, and that turned into a black hat class that I taught for like three or four years. Uh, so that was really fun. And then Mike left and went to Tanium, uh, where he built their EDR product um, and was responsible for developing a lot of their machine learning patent stuff. And, uh, you know, Mike and I just had a super unique relationship in terms of number one, we're just two totally different human beings. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I, I have a technical background and all of that, but I'm not one one millionth as technical as Mike. You know, I've taken a, plenty of programming classes. I have never been a professional software developer in my life. Um, Mike has done that his entire life. So, you know, I'm just much more focused on the operations and go to market side of things and all of that. Mike is a product builder. So we just had a very complimentary set of um, capabilities and uh, we were both super excited about stepping into the void, I guess, and, 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 and trying to make it happen. So, you know, him and I just kept in close communication and kept the conversation going. And uh, one day I was like, all right, it's time to do it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've made this comment a bunch of times, like I given two options in my life, I've, I've pretty rarely taken the easier one. Um, uh, in fact, I can't really think of any time and, uh, raising, deciding to raise money during COVID is certainly one of those times. Um, but you know, we did it, got enough money to get out. And then since then it's, it's been, it's been great. Who's advising you through all this? Who are your mentors? You're like, God, I I think this is a good idea, but I need someone who's done this before to guide me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, a lot of people. Um, my boss at the time, uh, a guy named Steve, uh, was very helpful. He had started a number of his own companies. Uh, Stu, Stuart McClure, the former CEO of Silence, had, was amazing. Um, a number of C-level folks that I worked with at Silence or started other companies, like the guy who hired me at, um, uh, Silence is a guy named Eric Cornelius. Uh, by the time he left Silence, he was the CTO. He's now the chief product officer of another startup now. Um, a number of our like original investors were very uh, helpful. A guy who's the CEO of Sevco, JJ Guy, was one of the people who, frankly, wouldn't be here without him, I don't think. He made a boatload of introductions for me from a venture capital perspective. Um, and so without him, uh, it's, it's hard to imagine things would be where they are. Might have got there eventually, but he was really helpful there. So, yeah, I mean, the idea that you do this kind of thing on your own is totally insane and impossible. Um, you know, it, it takes it took a lot of people to get us where we are. So then you get going. And was there a moment when you're through, I don't know, was product development or hiring when you're like, you know what, I think we might just pull this off. There's something here that uh, is going to really uh, be useful. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of things were happening from a macro perspective that were really good for us, like the massive push around SBOMs, software bill of materials that that's come out is something we didn't plan on, obviously. Um, 
the legislation and, and all that around there. CISA, you know, taking a very big active role in that space was was really good. Um, I mean, we we've, we've built an unbelievable team here, uh, which has allowed us to build an unbelievable product. Um, so you know, we're we're winning deals with massive companies um, that are not easy to sell to. Uh, so and we've done that repeatedly now. So, you know, seeing that kind of result, we're barely two years into this thing is, is pretty crazy. Um, and, and it's, we're definitely solving a problem, uh, I guess. So, so yeah, it's, um, I guess this is always the case, but our challenge is just execution at this point. You know, we have the team, we have the product, we have the processes in place. It, the market's there. Um, we know who the personas are. Like, it's just execution. It's just an execution problem now. Well, let's talk about uh, NetRise itself. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different here, Tom. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and explain to you what I think NetRise does and let you tell me where I've got it completely wrong or where I've got it right. I mean, I'm a simple guy from Scotland. So, you know, I'm going I'm to use uh, simple words to, to, to explain it to myself as I'm doing this. So, what I saw looking at, at this was that. You know, we've got this whole class of devices out there that are in various stages of being old, uh, sort of old, or, or relatively new. That the explosion of IoT come in, and many of them operate under the model of there shouldn't be much going on on those devices except for just the core functions, and therefore the firmware becomes you know a, an important part of what they do, right? Um, and that firmware might have been developed many years ago. It might have been developed uh, with different practices involved to develop it. But the feeling so far has been, you know, don't touch it, right, in case you break something. Uh, but still, we don't know, you know, haven't known what's going on with that that firmware, what's there, what we learned in the last five years compared to when it was developed 10 years ago. And I think what NetRise is doing is coming in to shine a light on on that whole class of devices and the firmware that runs them so that people can make you know, good operational versus risk-based decisions about is there something we should do differently um, based on what we've learned about that whole firmware environment? Um, what have I got wrong? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's, I think that's a, um, a good generalized explanation of what we do. I mean, it's really about providing visibility and risk identification to a class of devices that historically has had none. Um, you know, in our initial focus has been on, you know, this class of devices that we call XIoT, which stands for Extended Internet of Things, which is basically just an umbrella term that encompasses IoT. So, you know, security cameras, printers, um, smart things. Uh, then you have industrial control systems, medical devices, uh, embedded systems in vehicles, satellites, and telecommunications equipment. Um, so those are kind of like the six device classes that we view as um, belonging to the umbrella of XIoT. And then what did NetRise bring to the party then? What, what's the thing that you, is the innovation or the uniqueness that you have? Yeah, so being able to automate the process of analyzing this firmware is very challenging. Um, you know, a lot of this work has been historically done via consulting engagements and, and things like that um, because it requires a very kind of specific set of skills and capabilities and analysis techniques that are not that are not easy to to acquire or grasp 
And so, however, the, the capability is needed everywhere and it's not able to be consumed by everyone. And that's because people can't obviously afford to have uh, an army of consultants come in and manually reverse engineer all of their firmware that um, is running on their thousands of devices. It's a totally unscalable approach. And so what we um, are able to do is automatically, um, you know, reverse engineer is even really the right word because uh, that's not actually what's kind of happening. Um, we, we can do that, but I mean, it's more about getting visibility into the specific artifacts and, and file systems that um, exist within the firmware. So, and then going through that and enumerating all of the various components um, and generating an SBOM, as I mentioned in the past, and then taking that SBOM and enriching it with um, vulnerability and exploit and threat intelligence information so that end customers have better ways to prioritize those vulnerabilities and risks uh, above and beyond CVSS, which I think we've all agreed at this point is not adequate for doing that. And in addition, we provide visibility to a number of other artifacts that are important. Public keys, private keys, certificates, credentials, misconfigurations, binary protections. We give you the search capability. You can export the data. You can do all these different things um, due to it being a platform. So that's that's really what we're doing is attempting to provide you with the same kind of visibility that you expect uh, on like a laptop, desktop, or server, but for all of these other devices. And before NetRise, was it just purely a consulting engagement? They bring in, was it pen testers or engineers to figure all out? Or were there other ways they were kind of, you know, doing it manually? Yeah. So, I mean, there there were there were and are a small number of companies out there kind of going after this problem in a few different ways. Uh, in my opinion, it, it was and still is overwhelmingly done by consulting companies. If you took like all of the work that's happening globally or even in the United States, I would I would venture to bet there's more money being spent on consultants doing this work than on products doing this work um, for a number of different reasons. That's obviously changing rapidly. Um, yeah, so that was the one approach. And then you'd have other approaches for companies that are building these devices where they could integrate in certain capabilities into their like, you know, DevSecOps pipelines and, and, and things like that. So that was like maybe the other approach you would have. Um, but the vast majority of these things were just not being assessed or evaluated at all, I think would be a fair statement. So, so uh, ignore a little bit, um, you know, we got other things to worry about, or they're paying probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to consultants to, to do it for them. And there's your budget for, for a purchase of that rise, right? Exactly. Yep. And when you go to a company, who are you targeting? Who's the buyer? Who gets this? Yeah. So we target um, a, multiple different customers. I would say our focus right now is definitely around the device manufacturers. They have the most pain in the space. Um, you know, I guess like the, the way I talk about it is it's, it's a, it's a painkiller for them, our platform, and we augment either their existing product security capabilities, or we can come in and kind of be their product security capabilities in a box. So anybody building a device, so, you know, building networking equipment or ICS devices or medical devices or cars or whatever. And then we also sell to the people who are just end users of those devices. Um, the use cases are different. The value proposition is different. 
the pricing is different. Um, but we have built our platform in such a way that we can serve both of those customers. Now, over time, we'll have to you know, make adjustments and things like that for things that are very specific for an end user versus a device manufacturer. But as of right this second, we're basically using one platform to, to rule them all. And then we also sell to consulting companies. So companies, those same companies that are, that are doing all that consulting work can now do 10 times as much consulting work uh, and provide 100 times more value. So there's obvious, um, an obvious value prop there. Going back to the manufacturers, you said you remove a pain for them. What's that pain? Are they, are they on the hook to, to know all this and they just can't do it then? Yeah, so if you think about something like Log4j as an example, the overwhelming majority of companies do not have a way in which they can determine where, number one, if they have that component somewhere, and if so, where is it? And if we have it and we know where it is, is it vulnerable? And if we know where it is and we have it and it's vulnerable, is it vulnerable in the context of the device? So these are a lot of questions that you need to be able to answer like very rapidly. Um, so that's that's one part of it. You also have just the general SBOM problem where you they have their end customers uh, demanding or requesting whatever word you want to use the list of ingredients that make up uh, a particular device. So those are that's the ability to prioritize the risks and vulnerabilities using something other than CVSS, as I mentioned, and then identifying risks such as open source license misuse or violations. Like, I mean, there's, you know, 20, 30 different things that we can provide them um, all in one spot that also assists from like a, a tool and product consolidation perspective at the end of the day. Before we go any further, Tom, let's get to know you a little bit better. I've got a list of questions right here. I'm going to ask you to pick three numbers between 1 and 35, and I'll read out the questions they correspond to. Uh, 17. 17. What's the first computer you ever owned? I think it was a, uh, I think it was like a gateway desktop. Um, I was in seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. I'm 38. So what year was that? 1996, 1997. And oh man, I think we bought it from Circuit City or something like that. Um, there's two names that don't exist anymore, Gateway and Circuit City. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember it just blowing my mind. Um, and then I spent a lot of time. Were you gaming or, or, or tinkering around or what? Yeah. Um, I, I played a couple games on it at the time, um, but I was more tinkering around um, more than anything uh i was one of those people who i clicked on every possible thing there was to click on um to figure out how stuff worked and i quickly realized that you know you could do some things that were fun and interesting that probably weren't meant to be done kind of thing um so that was fun um i was i was one of the kids messing around with all the um you know getting all the AOL CDs and getting more free minutes and all that other stuff. So that was, that was fun dealing with terrible dial up internet connections and people can't be on the phone and all of those challenges that, that no longer exist yeah. um, from a computing perspective, but yeah, all over the place. I love that though. That's uh, launched a career, your gateway PC right there, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I kind of always knew I'd end up in cybersecurity, which is a weird thing, I guess. All right, one more number, team, one in 35. 29. 29. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Strong, strong coffee? How many cups a day? I think I'm on my fourth. Ooh, you're a coffee lover then. You know, man, I like coffee. Uh, it's like a habit more than a, I don't need it. I'm, trust me, I'm, I'm wound pretty tight as it is. Uh, coffee is not what I need. I just, I'm always drinking something, whether it's coffee or like a sparkling water or something, but, but yeah, I drink a lot of it. Um, but I'm not one of those people. I don't care about going to Starbucks or any of that. Like, do so you enjoy the habit? You enjoy the, uh, kind of like the ritual, right? You make coffee, it's, it's nice coffee and you enjoy it, but you're not, it's, that's it. Yeah, it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a coffee snob or anything like that. Like great coffee, great, but good coffee is equally as great to me most of the time. Cool. Last number team, one in 35. 33. 33. Oh, that's, you can't pick your own company. Uh, which cybersecurity company do you admire right now? Hmm. I guess I'm, I'm a big fan of what, what Tenable is doing. Um, you know, they, they are building this thing called Platform One. And they have, uh, like a, in my opinion, a unique set of capabilities that have come together from acquisitions and other things that I think will be able to provide a very compelling um, end-to-end platform experience for a lot of enterprise customers. So that would probably be, um, I mean, and they're they're and they're an older company, also, obviously. So yeah, I've been around for ages, right? Yeah, they've been around forever. Um, I'm always interested in companies. Like all new cybersecurity companies are pretty interesting, you know, like, of course they are. Uh, so I'm, I'm always like more fascinated in how does a company who's been doing kind of the same thing forever end up doing something new and interesting? Like that's fascinating to me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of feel like uh, the last few years have been really interesting in our space because there have been so many new companies coming in and, you know, most of them are trying to do things different or take, you know, you take on things. I mean, who knows how this year will shake out in terms of the funding environment to keep some of them going. But uh, I feel like there's so much going on in our space right now. It's it's kind of exciting. Yeah. I mean, it seems like 23 and 24 are going to be, are going to be very um, like put your money where your mouth is kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's companies are, there's going to be a lot happening um, from an acquisition or investment or winding down or, 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 um, but yeah. Well, we talked about one important day at a company, which is the starting, the founding of the company. Another important day is that day when you win your first real live paying customer. Take us back to to that moment and and tell us what happened. Well, we had a design partner. You know, it it was a first paying client for sure. It was what, November of 21 was our first paying customer. I mean, we weren't even a year old. So that was pretty cool. It was a, like, I don't know what you, a token amount. Uh, what to say it was not a big deal would be an understatement. It was money though, right? Real life cash. <laughs> it was money. Yeah. I got a physical check in the mail. I still have that check. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'll never get rid of it. Uh, so that, yeah, it was really cool. I think, I think what's probably a better one, kind of one to talk about would be we closed the six figure deal, which was our second deal, like four or five months later. Um, and that was, that was amazing. Uh, so that was I kind I I think when we were like wow this is um this is a thing uh so that was you know 
we went through a, a long like evaluation process. Um, we built a bunch of, you know, capabilities that they wanted, which also were capabilities that other people were asking for. So it all kind of made sense. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was a big, that was a big deal for us for sure. And the second one, um, was that a design partner as well or? Yeah. Yep. I mean, so that deal, like our, our product went GA in August of 2022 and both, you know, and that deal closed in like June of 22, something like that. So we weren't even GA yet in that neck of the woods, something like that. And then how do you think about uh, the, the sales team that go to market uh, then, Tom, and as you're building that site? Uh, did you, when, when did you know it was the right time to start hiring people? We were basically, I mean, we probably hired, you know, the person we originally brought in uh, was doing more than sales also. Uh, so that was helpful. They were able to help with a number of different capabilities within the company from like an operational perspective. So it wasn't just out there carrying a bag and carrying a number kind of thing. That was part of it for sure. Uh, it was really once the product got to a place where we knew we were providing a significant am- amount of value, that was when we knew we had to start bringing people on board. So, um, and that, that's what we've done. And, and then with that one person, let's just drill into that a little bit. So how did you manage that transition from you doing the work, right? You being the founder, leading the, the sales engagements, to I'm going to trust this person with more and more. You have to get the stuff out of your brain into their brain somehow. How did you manage that? Yeah, uh, I don't know that it. I don't know that it really changed. Um, you know, uh, I'm still very involved in almost every opportunity we're working on to some extent. But you know, it's it's really about just immersion in the problem. So you know, we have daily calls where we talk about. What happened the day before? What's happening today? What worked? What didn't work? So we have a very strong, um, you know, operational communicating communication cadence uh, when it comes to when it comes to that. So I, I kind of I try to operate under this premise of giving the sales team everything they need. And, and what what I mean by that is I don't want any excuses. You know, as long as something's reasonable, like okay, I need this piece of collateral. I need this customer testimonial. I need whatever this blog. I'll do those things. Uh, however, I then expect results, right? So that's the that's the kind of arrangement and deal I have with with folks. Is listen, if you need something, okay. Uh, but then these are the expectations. Um, but yeah, it's that's a ever evolving process. Uh, and I think as we kind of hit the next phase of the company is when I'll probably begin to take a slight step back from a go-to-market perspective. Is, is it hard to do that? Yeah, I'm terrible at doing that. Um, I'm not a, I'm the furthest thing from like a micromanaging person. That's, uh, I make the joke all the time. Like everyone at this company is smarter than I am. So, um, which is true. But uh, so the idea that I could even micromanage them is funny. Like, I, you know, uh, but I am involved. Uh, I am involved in, uh, in, in a lot, uh, I could certainly take some lessons from like doing a better job at delegating some stuff. Um, what, what's happened for me has been, it's just became a for, it's just became a thing that happened organically, which is how things work best for me. Right. Um, like it wasn't until the cup was overflowing until I realized that there was too much water in the cup. 
you know, that's, that's, that's how I am. Um, even though I can see that the cup's filling up, like, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't, I didn't take, I don't take action until I absolutely need to. So yeah. Uh, but then that just creates, you figure out what matters the most really, really fast, whenever you have too many things to do. So, you know, it, it, it kind of forces a automatic prioritization of certain things. I love that idea of, of constraints force you to to think about what's really important. I think, you know, I, I worked at a startup once where it seemed like whenever we wanted money, we had money from various rounds. But I think it actually, you know, held us back in many ways because there's lots of things that we were doing with hindsight that you wondered, you know, why were we even doing that at that stage? And, you know, someone made a good ask and there was money in the kitty and there's like, yeah, we'll give that a go. Whereas constraints force you to think about, well, what we can't do it all and we can't even do half of it. So what's the 10% we should be doing and, and how do we do it best? It's such a powerful lever to pull. I mean, especially in this environment, man, it's, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky and it's a lot of pressure. I think there's a big difference between stress and pressure, right? But there's, there's lots of, there's lots of pressure for sure. Uh, making the right decision. Um, selling into the right market, talking to the right people. You know, we had a call yesterday about what's the next big feature we're going to build into the platform. And I mean, it's, you can make a just really good argument for three of them um, that we have customers asking for all three of them. Uh, and so it's like, so then the question becomes like, okay, is there a sequence of features that makes more sense? Um, if we build this one, does it make building the second one easier and the third one easier? So you get into these, you know, you just, you have to really figure out which one matters most now, like right this second. Uh, and that's hard because then you're, you're just, you're never going to make everyone happy. Um, you know, we're probably 18 to 24 months away from having everything that everyone wants, generally speaking, you know? Um, and then after that, it's just about refining things, I think. Um, but that's how we really feel about how, because we've moved very fast from a product capability perspective. I mean, the team is just crazy. So it's a good problem to have, but that doesn't make it not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about your, your go to market motions, um, when you're, you know, adding more customers, what's one thing you wish you could solve really easily overnight that's kind of bugging you? The go to market is the problem in this space. So, you know what I mean? So that, it, there's a lot. It's not like, you know, when people are like, well, Tom, isn't that always the problem at companies? And it's like, no, that's not always the problem at companies. Look at Silence. Like, there was no question about what the go-to-market is going to be at Silence, right? The former CTO of McAfee is now running an antivirus company, guys. I think we, I think we understand how to go to market, right? We're going to leverage the channel, like blah, 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 blah. That's, that's not the case here. The, the, the go-to-market here is... Is, is the tricky part. Like how much time do you spend on product security versus enterprise customers? Um, where is the, you know, uh, who, who's the best persona to sell into? Um, do people care about having an on-prem solution? So, I mean, I guess awareness that the problem is solvable, I guess, is maybe the one thing I would kind of fix is uh, maybe that sounds like wildly generic, but we've talked to so many companies and they, we show them the platform and they just go, we didn't even know, we didn't even know this was a thing, uh, you know, and that's crazy to me at this point. 
Well, I, I, I can see that though, because you know they've they've worked for twenty years without it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they probably intuitively know it's something they should work on, but if we can't fix it, what's the point? <laughs> yep. Uh, so you know, like I've used this analogy with us multiple times around comparing us to EDR uh, if we're in a number of different ways. You know, I remember the first time I saw an EDR solution, I was like, it like blew my mind. Um, I was like, wow, I didn't even know that something like this was possible. This is great, and you know. I think we're in a similar point in the market right now, right? Where, you know, EDR was, I think, probably fair to say, limping along for a number of years. And then it just went crazy. Yeah. Primarily due to the cloud-based nature of EDR that came around with companies like CrowdStrike and Silence and Sentinel One. That was the big turning point. Nobody wanted to, I mean, lots of companies did, like Carbon Black uh, was deploying EDR on, like, physical servers and stuff like that, but that was just kind of a pain. Um, and that was just the only way to do it initially. So that was fine. Uh, and that's what I did with the company I was at. But, um, you know, I think that's the awareness of us and our capabilities is probably the, the big thing. Well, let's flip things around, Tom. Is there a question for me about the go-to-market side, since we're talking about that, that uh, I could have a stab at uh, giving you some thoughts about? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I... I think is I'm curious about is what, how do you see people targeting, you know, uh, like prospecting challenges and filling the pipeline as it comes to the change in remote work now, you know, you know, to me, I'm not a big fan of cold calling. And I think that's kind of a, I mean, I know there's just entire companies built around cold calling. So obviously there's a use case for it, but for our specific go to market, and sales motion, it seems not the best tactic for a number of reasons. So what are you seeing in terms of, you know, reach out to people you haven't talked to before being successful? And we, we have a number of other things we do that are that work really well, but I'm curious what you've seen from other folks. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there's uh, 3,300 vendors in cybersecurity right now, right? And uh, everyone's making their, their noise. Um, Usually, by trying to use these traditional approaches of let's hire some SDRs, let's give them one of these tools to go and bombard people with emails and phone calls, and you know through attrition or, or you know luck or whatever, we might get some some meetings booked on the back of it, right? But I think your observation is right, which is that uh, in you know post COVID, where more people are working at home, but also I think just from you know being tapped out with just too much, uh, those approaches are working less and less than they were maybe two or three, four or five years ago. Um, it's, it's interesting. So we're recording this on March 7th. Um, this morning, I just released uh, an interview with the CEO at Strata Identity, uh, Eric Olden. And Eric has built and sold two companies in cybersecurity already. He's now on his third. And at Strata, he had a rule as a series, as a seed company and, an, and a series A company no one is making cold calls and sending cold emails, <laughs> right? That was his rule. We're not doing that. And for the reasons that you talked about, right? Uh, but they had a lot of inbound. And the reason that they had inbound is he doubled and tripled down on the company's ability to produce content and go and be known in the space that they're in. So they, they, he wrote himself a bunch of content. They spoke, they did podcasts, they did a whole bunch of things to go and evangelize the, the problem that they're solving, not evangelize, evangelize necessarily strata itself, which you know, comes by default, but to evangelize the problem that they're solving. 
And that helped get people to go, God, yeah, you know, that sounds like my sort of company, you know, it's, you know, what they talk about really hits home with me. Let's get in touch. And they, they obviously got their inbound through doing that. So I think one thing I would say is that uh, if you are thinking about, you know, it's a company uh, that makes a ton of sense, you know, go and evangelize the problem. So if you, if you get those people, whatever the number is, percentage of the, of the audience, 50% who didn't know it could be solved, you're going to hit them better by, by being incredibly active in the community uh, and finding every damn reason you can to go and speak and talk and show up and shake, shake hands and produce content that does all that for you. And then when you do have people who are, who are on the hook for generating pipeline, whether they're you know, SDRs, AEs, whoever might be in your process, what they can do is use that, right? They can, they can say, there was Tom talking at this conference uh, or Mike talking at this conference and, you know, listen to this section and minute 23 to minute 28. I think that's going to make a difference for you as the, whatever you are at Honeywell, right? Um, and here's why I think that, right? So you're actually giving a, a lot of context and relevance to why you're engaging with people as opposed to just, you know, sending these blind, cold things saying we should talk. Um, you're actually helping your team uh, by doing that, that kind of company strategy of, of doing it like that. So that, I mean, that's one thing I would say if you're not doing it already is, is figure that out. And I, I've seen companies hire people who are evangelists. And, you know, these are not, you know, um, not lacking in experience. You know, like at Silence, you guys hired Malcolm Harkins, right? You know, there's someone who's the sort of caliber of the person to hire, right? Known in the community, is not afraid to have a point of view. <laughs> Certainly not. No, right. Go talk about this. You know, I talked to a CEO last year and I, I've used this example a few times, but um, uh, Snehal Antani, he, was a C- he is a CEO at Horizon3.ai, Horizon3, I think it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so I talked to Snehal and I was, you know, started the, the conversation and it was all kind of nice and pleasant. And uh, he, he was formerly a CISO, right? And he decided to start his own company. And um, he used the phrase, uh, all these chasm tools out there are snake oil. Right. And I know that because I bought them all as a CISO. Right. I, that makes you stop. Right. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on a minute. <laughs> when you stay snake oil, right. That's, you know, but it, it got the attention of people. And I think you need, as a, in general, we as, a, as an industry need to be more bold in our claims and how we want to go out there and hire the people that can go out there and say, you know what? You know, we're completely missing a whole vulnerability that we have. We, we, we the belief is you can't do this. We're proving you can do it. And here's how easy it is to do. And by the way, you don't need to spend a five, you know, half a million dollars on a consultant every couple of years to come and tell you the same thing, right? So someone, yeah, I, I believe, needs to get out there and just you know, create some noise. Not be stupid about it, right? But uh, make some noise that people stand up and listen and go, huh, right? And then you, you know, your, your salespeople can use that as a way to do their outreach, right? And then when I think about outreach, I think one of the things that um, is happening right now is there is that movement away from, Let's send a thousand emails and make a hundred phone calls, right? What I would what I would encourage people to do is say, look, you need to get hold of just 10 people this month or this week or this two weeks, whatever the sprint is, right? Let's get each of those people surrounded, is what I call it, right? So who do they know? Who do we know? What partners are involved? Um, where have they been before? Where have they talked before themselves? What can we do to sort of learn about that person? So that when we are engaging with them, we'll stand out as people who, A, know what we're talking about, and B, know them enough to be able to say, 
we actually pre, I'm pretty sure we're going to be relevant for you. And here's why. And having that, you know, much more pinpoint, you know, spearfish, you know, you use a good analogy from our world, right? That that's that's the bit that's going to make a difference as you're doing that. Um, at that point, from there, you know, you don't have to rely on cold call tactics. It might be introductions. You might realize that someone in your network knows them. You know, that if if you're if you say who knows these thousand people, right? If you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? But if you could, I think the company that says who knows these five people. Um, then okay, well, let's figure out who knows these five people or who I know that might know them and things like that. And I think that's the way to be relevant. I think that's right. I think that's uh, good feedback. Yeah, and we've certainly done a ton of that. I've done, you know, boatloads of public speaking and podcasts and a number of other things. So, um, I think that works well. And I, man, I'm just not a big believer of the traditional marketing spend that exists in cybersecurity. Um, and I think, and I think that's going away. Uh, with what's happening in the venture space, right? You, you're not able to raise like this crazy amount of capital anymore, and like growth at all costs is no longer the no longer the status quo. So, like this idea that buying a bigger booth matters, like none of it matters. None of it matters. Um, like maybe at the top end it does, you know, if like you're IBM and you want to know that the company you're buying from is I don't I don't know, but like. I just see so much waste uh, that that goes on there. Um, I mean, there's all the swag thing, which is just like, who can spend the most money on cheap plastic things that everyone throws away? It's like, why? Uh, like stuff like that just drives me nuts. Um, so like I have that mentality, like where guys, we're not giving out any swag that's like useless, right? So we have like beer koozies, the most useful piece of swag known to man. <laughs> um right like but like the idea that like here's a shitty pen like if you're gonna give out a pen give out a great pen um it's like you know it's like stuff like that though like or here's a here's a um a personal hand fan that it's like what <laughs> um okay that goes straight into the hotel room trash can right there exactly and it's just so much waste and time and energy for no value so you know, I think, uh, and I think that's a good thing at the end of the day, like, you know, being more conservative with capital and not spending it frivolously is better for everyone. I think that's a great thing. And that's, you know, as you say, part of the constraints that are going to come down is, you know, these are things that are going to be pretty easy to cross off that line in the spreadsheet, right? It's like, nope, 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 right? And these, here's the five things we think actually might be able to drive some value for us. Yep. Um, a, a quick, quick, quick aside, I remember last year, probably a year ago, um, you know, when things were still frothy, uh, this, this pretty early stage company had a job advertised and I think they had less than a hundred employees. They had a job advertised for a swag manager. And I was thinking, well, how much swag are you given that you need to employ someone full time to do that? It just seemed a little bit nuts to me. That's baffling. Yeah. Imagine saying that in the board meeting, like, yeah, we just hired a swag hand. Like what, what did you do? <laughs> Yeah, you know the thing. We need some help hiring some people. We need a new this. We got to need to get a new VP of engineering. We need to get a swag manager. Like, whoa, 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 a swag manager. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, listen, I've I've loved this conversation. Um, if someone wants to get in touch and, and keep it going with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, I mean, LinkedIn's the always the best approach. Uh, Thomas Pace on there. I'm on like Twitter and stuff, but I don't do anything. I I don't do anything on social media really. Uh, but my Twitter handle is at Tommy Pastry. And yeah, you know, reach out. Uh, emails thomas.pace at 
netrise.io. Okay. And are you planning, even though we just talked about the waste of time and money, are you planning any events this year, such as being as Black Hat or, or even RSA? Yeah, I mean, we'll be at both of those events. Um, like, we're not doing a booth at RSA. We'll have one at Black Hat. So, uh, but we have a ton of like dinners and more like strategic things like that, um, uh, relying on a bunch of, you know, partnerships we have with much bigger companies. Um, so that that's another angle we've taken. So yeah, uh, but we will be at those events for sure. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to look out for you guys there and connect and, and learn more about what NetRise is doing. Tom, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, sir. Well, I really enjoyed that interview with Tom. Uh, what a compelling person he is working, you know, creating NetRise with his co-founder to make a big impact. I had three takeaways that, that come to mind immediately. One is this idea that they're tackling an underserved part of the market. You know, with all the hype right now about you know cloud security and all the players jump into all the sub-markets in cloud, uh, sometimes it's, it's the you know, what might be seen you know, the more boring parts of the market where you can actually have a bigger impact, right? And tackling things that have been assumed in the past can't be fixed, won't be fixed, shouldn't be fixed, whatever it might be. Um, and actually coming in with a fresh approach and a fresh pair of eyes from modern days as opposed to, you know, things that were thought of 10, 15 years ago can sometimes have a really big impact. And I think that's the what NetRise is doing and whether they're going to have the biggest impact. Second thing that I took away was, you know, and I asked Tom about the the advice and the support that he got early on. You know, he said, you know, the idea that you can do this as a uh, on your own is ludicrous, right? And he listed out all those people that had been advisors and connectors and, you know, people that came in to, to help them out in some way, I think is so important, you know, especially as a, as a first-time founder, having people that are have done this before, um, get coming in and giving that advice is so important. And he said, you know, even like his his old boss at, at Silence had done a couple of companies before and were able to give advice. Stu McClure was giving advice. JJ Guy was giving advice. All these people were were the ones that were were helping out. And as he said, you know, I think he said specifically for JJ Guy, if it wasn't for him, you know, NetRise might not exist because he was the one that you know delivered a whole bunch of introductions to the VC world, so they got their first round of funding. And then the th- I think the third takeaway for me was what we talked about at the end there. You know, being different and being bold uh, is so important. We think not just about the product, but also how we go to market. You know, too often, I think what, we're, what we do is we kind of default to the old ways, default to what we think is proven. And it might have been proven 10 years ago, but it might not be proven right now, right? And that, that whole thing about, well, we need to get a bunch of SDRs and we need to, you know, start getting some AEs on board and then they'll, they'll just pound the market. I think anytime you think different to that is going to pay off at the moment. Um, there's not many companies in cybersecurity right now, certainly startups who are deploying a bunch of SDRs and seeing an incredible return from that. You know, they're either failing or they're working okay. And very few are, are, are stellar performances. So thinking about with a constrained budget and resources, what can you do to be different is where things might pay off. And the you know, phrase I've heard and used myself in the past is different is better than better, right? And using that, let's, let's be different, let's be bold and try and, try and you know, get more than our fair share of attention out there, I think is going to really pay off. So that was a great conversation. I really enjoyed you know, chatting to Tom and hearing about his views, what's going on at NetRise, how they're thinking about this part of the market. 
and I wish them every success for the uh, the events they're doing this year at Black Hat and also at RSA and uh, for 2023 and beyond. It would mean a lot to me and to the continued growth of the show if you'd help get the word out. So how do you do that easily? There are two ways. Firstly, just simply send a link to a friend. Send a link to the show, to this episode. Um, You can email it, text it, Slack it, whatever works for you and is easy for you. The second way is to leave a super quick rating. And sometimes that can seem complicated, so I've made it as easy for you as I can. You simply have to go to ratethispodcast.com slash cyber. That's ratethispodcast.com slash cyber and explains exactly how to do it. Either of these ways will take you less than 30 seconds to do and it will mean the world to me. So thank you.